In July of this year, the president of Haiti was assassinated. In 2010, over 200,000 Haitians lost their lives in a devastating earthquake. In the aftermath of such tragedies like these, the United States and the international community typically come to the aid of the Haitian people. But what happens when we lose our focus? What happens when these events pass and the spotlight is no longer on Haiti? Who is doing the work to help the Haitian people? Well, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of NGOs and other nonprofit organizations that come into Haiti from time to time to help them with different projects. However, what happens when these NGOs and other charitable organizations make the Haitian people dependent on their charity? Who then is helping the people in Haiti uplift themselves and self-sustain for a greater future for their lives, their families, and their communities? Well, we're going to talk to one such person here on episode 95 of the Agents of Innovation podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Fame. Dr. Fame is a physician from Salem, Virginia, which is just outside the Roanoke area in Virginia. And Dr. Fame has been going down to Haiti since the mid-1990s. He's been there on over 50 different trips. He has helped the Haitian people in various communities start schools. They've also started medical clinics. And in addition, he is now working on helping to put in place a public health apparatus to help the people there have more access to health care and diffuse a lot of the problems that go on in a very widespread area. Well, Dr. Fame and I uh, did this conversation virtually over Zoom, and but I hope to one day meet him. Uh, he's uh, an incredible man. He's also got two books, and those books are, one was published in 2008 called The Lambie's Call, A Haitian Journey. I read that book ahead of our conversation. It was really a page turner and a fantastic story about some of his early years in Haiti and some of his first perceptions and the, some of the people he met and made friends with and some of the challenges they faced together. Uh, really a great book. Uh, in some ways, uh, a lot of heartbreaking moments as well but uh, at least uh, gives us an insight into what's going on in Haiti and really the challenges that many of us can't even imagine. Well, in 2021, this year, Dr. Fame wrote a sequel to that book, and it is also called The Lambie's Call, Breaking the Chains. So uh, that is uh, another one that I have here, and I haven't re get, yet gotten it. I wanted to make sure uh, we had time to do the, the conversation here. Um, but uh, I'm just so thankful for all the people here uh, that uh, you, the listener, that are listening to this episode. As many of you know who listen to the Agents of Innovation podcast regularly, we always end the podcast with a song. And the song we're going to play is a song called Brothers by Melodyne. Now, we've actually played this song before on this podcast. We've also had the band Melodyne before on this podcast a long time ago, though, almost six years ago. It was uh, way back on episode nine. And the reason I'm playing their song is because Melodyme and Dr. Fame uh, are the only two uh, episodes I can remember actually having uh, a direct connection to Haiti. And so Melodyme, in the, even though they are a rock band from Northern Virginia, the other side of Virginia from where Dr. Fame is from, 
They actually also started a charity back in 2014. The charity is called Now I Play Along 2. And you can go to their website, nowiplayalong2.com, and learn more about it. But basically what they do is uh, they collect donations of musical instruments from people everywhere. And then they take those donations physically to Haiti with them. And then they go to some schools and teach some young children uh, there how to play the instruments. And, you know, it's interesting because as I'm reading Dr. Fame's book and talking to him here in this upcoming conversation you're going to hear, I learned that the through Dr. Fame that the Haitian people are they really have a lot of joy amidst their incredible suffering. And a lot of times that joy is expressed through music and dance and song. And so we um, it's so cool that now that I've learned that part of it, I can see how Melodyme and their donations of musical instruments must have just a profound impact on the people that are they're bringing those instruments to and the, and the young children that they're playing. And, you know, two of the brothers that are in Melodyme, uh, there are two brothers in that band, uh, Sammy and Ty Dewis, and they actually, um, the, the song Brothers is about how their, I believe it was their grandparents, uh, or maybe their great-grandparents, I can't remember, they were, uh, when they were young, they had musical instruments donated to them, left on their doorstep, and they were a, a young, struggling immigrant family at that point. And so music then became a part of their family's lives. And as you can see, it's passed down to their their grandchildren, or maybe it was their great-grandchildren, Tommy and, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ty and Sammy. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of cool that now that that band gets to do that and repay the favor, uh, pay it forward, I guess you will. And um, and then we're just, you know, this incredible story with Tom Fame. I hope uh, you all really take it to heart and think about, you know, what we can do together to help him and help the people of Haiti uh, in, in times. Uh, they're, they're always in times of crisis. It's just that we sort of see the heightened crisis when maybe there's political turmoil or an economic crisis or a public health crisis or you know, some some other uh, things going on there. So like a natural disaster. So uh, anyway, I just want to thank you all for listening this podcast. Um, we're now at episode 95, which is just incredible. I just want to thank you, the listeners. Uh, and if you haven't subscribed yet, you know, we've had 94 amazing episodes before uh, this particular guest. And I think every one of them are just really unique in, in their different ways. And so um, go back and listen to some of the old episodes if you haven't yet. And then, you know, hit the subscribe button right now while you're thinking about it so that you don't miss future episodes. You know, we put out, out about one or two episodes a month and we're getting close to 100. So it's going to be really awesome. And also what we've done together as a community is not just have these podcast episodes, but also I have now built a new company, a new community called Fearless Journeys. You can visit it by going to fearlessjourneys.org. On the website, you can actually sign up for our free weekly newsletter. They're short, inspirational stories that you can read in about three minutes each week. If you want to join as a member, you can join our Book of the Month Club. You can get, uh, you can be part of group coaching sessions by some of our featured innovators. Who are our featured innovators? They're actually all of our previous podcast guests. Well, all of the featured innovators are previous podcast guests. 45 of them now in the community as featured innovators. So it's a really... Uh, great. And you're going to be able to connect with them directly, learn from them directly, also meet and learn from other members in the community, people who are maybe considering wanting to go on their own entrepreneurial journey, maybe just taking the first steps, 
or people uh, who maybe are already entrepreneurs that want to connect with others with an entrepreneurial mindset uh, and maybe collaborate, maybe level up. And then also others who may just be lifelong learners who want an intellectually stimulating community with people that really, again, have this passion to have this entrepreneurial mindset and connect with others. And then, of course, there's going to be some travel opportunities. We're going to travel together to a, a couple times a year to, uh, to different spots, putting together some group trips. And also every month, every member of the Fearless Journeys communities gets a curated travel itinerary in your inbox. All you got to do is book your flights, book your hotels, but you've got a whole outline of everything you can do in the city from places to eat uh, to you know places to go, landmarks to see, all sorts of cool things. So I hope uh, you know you become part of the Fearless Journeys community. I think those who already have done it, and um, and then you know you'll be able to connect with so many great um, innovators uh, all across America and even some beyond. Uh, so also, I really want to thank our very first sponsor of the Fearless Journeys community is, and that is my friend Dan Lesniak. Uh, you might have remember hearing Dan on the Agents of Innovation podcast some years ago. Uh, well, Dan is a best-selling uh, real estate author and co-founder of the Hyperfast Agent Podcast and Coaching Program. Dan Lesniak, along with his wife, Carrie Scholl, have built the number one real estate team in the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia area, helping over 1,000 buyers and sellers each year. Dan, uh, in addition to having that incredible real estate team and his awesome podcast, the Hyperfast Agent Podcast and Coaching Program, he's got a latest venture. He's raised $15 million in equity from investors to acquire and develop over 200 condo units in D.C. Well, we are grateful that Dan is not only uh, one of the 45 featured innovators in the Fearless Journeys community that you can connect with, but he's also chosen to invest in Fearless Journeys as a sponsor of our community. So super grateful to Dan. And if you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please contact me at fearlessjourneysllc at gmail.com. You can also come over to fearlessjourneys.org and find some information there. So thank you so much, uh, Dan, and everybody who is supporting this podcast and supporting the Fearless Journeys community. And really, you know, we're, we've featured a lot of stories here on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Now we're in the business of creating some entrepreneurial stories, helping entrepreneurial people level up and helping others learn the first steps of becoming an entrepreneur. So it's really awesome. And of course, a lot of people also need to understand uh, philanthropy and uh, everything going on in the artistic world as well. And so we're doing that too. And we've got an amazing uh, person here, a medical doctor, Dr. Tom Fame, who's also got such a big philanthropic heart in all that he is doing. And I can't wait for you to hear his story. So let's do that right now. Well, I have as my guest today on the Agents of Innovation podcast, Dr. Tom Fame. Uh, Dr. Fame is a physician practicing in Salem, Virginia. For those of you that don't know the geography of Virginia, it's it's near Roanoke. And if you don't know that, well, go find a map. Uh, and uh, Dr. Fame has uh, overseen the OLPH Haiti Project since establishing it in 1996. He's led many groups to the remote outpost of the Dr. Fame. Uh, I should have asked you before this: Is it 
Cabas, how do you pronounce Cabastor? Well, I've, I've heard Cabastor and Cabaster. Yeah. And it's, that's the name of the little village or I don't know, just a location. And the valley is Pitifons. Pitifons. Okay. Well, I'm just going to let you say yeah. that. And yeah. uh, this is in Haiti's cent- Central Plateau. Um, and Dr. Fame has worked to improve the education, health, and economics of the people living there. Um, he's combined his God given love for the Haitian people with solid public health primary health care programs to build community and local leadership. I should also mention um, uh, Dr. Fame came to my attention. He saw me on a program and um, actually uh, thought I would enjoy his books. And so actually uh, I did read his first book. We'll get into this a little bit uh, called The Lambie's Call, A Haitian Journey. Uh, Really uh, fun read, but also heartbreaking in many ways as well. I mean, it just really shows you what a lot of the people in Haiti and the people he particularly came across are going through. But a fantastic book, I highly recommend it. I think it was published in 2008. And uh, right. and then he actually has a brand new book this year. Haven't gotten to it a little longer, but it's called The Lambie's Call, Breaking the Chains. And uh, I look forward to the update because uh, I believe, Dr. Famous, I said, you've been going to Haiti since 1996. Is that right? That's correct. About I made about 50 trips. I don't live there. I go back and forth for anywhere from a week to two weeks. And a lot of now that we have cell phone connection, in fact, I was just talking to my Haitian friend uh, this weekend. So now with COVID, haven't been able to travel as much, but things are still going on. The neat thing about it is with COVID, I haven't been able to visit, but I realized they don't really need me that much anymore, which is kind of a good thing. You know, they, 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 I've got things set up and they're taking care of it. I send a little money. I send some stuff. I do need to get down there. But when you build up local leadership, this we call it, I call it human potential in the area. That's the key, you know. Yeah, that's great. So how? what's the last time you were in Haiti? It was January, um, just before COVID. So January of 2020, yes. Yeah, going back well, January yeah, I yeah, I didn't think about how that even affected yeah, what you're doing. So that's that's important as well. Um, so let's let's go back, though. Let's go back in time. And um, so I want to know a little bit about uh, before you went to Haiti. Uh, first time was 1996, right? Yes. So uh, before that time, what were your travel experiences like? To other places before you went to Haiti? What, how did you, I, I put you this get in out the of the book a little bit, but I was, so, you know, I grew up in upstate New York with a big family, went to school and went away to Houston, Texas for medical school. And I joined the air force and I've kind of became an adventurous person. And when I was in Houston, uh, we went camping a lot with a big buddy of mine and we decided to take a trip to Mazatlan, Mexico. We drove through Texas through Mexico. I had three years of Spanish from high school that I kind of kind of honed up on and went and drove all the way to the South Pacific coast of, of Mexico with our little Ford Maverick. And so that was wow. a cool adventure. And then we got together years later and uh, drove to um, El Paso, Texas, walked across the border to the bus station, took a bus to uh, Chihuahua, Mexico, and then drove on the Branco del Cobra, which is a copper canyon. It's a big canyon in Mexico. Took this Mexican train and hiked into the canyon. So we did a couple adventures like that. Um, and then the book kind of goes into it, but I 
ran into someone at this free clinic I was working at that was going to take a Methodist church group on a medical mission trip to um, Jamaica. I thought, well, that sounds cool, you know, and so I went. I'm also, a pedi- I was a pediatrician in the Air Force, so I went and did that, and then the next trip was to Haiti, and the main thing, if you've ever been on these medical mission trips, you go down with a bunch of medicine in a box, you got a team, people line up, big lines of people, and, and I worked my, I saw 275 kids in five days, so that, that's really running them through. And what I realized is you can only do so much because all you had is your bag of magic tricks. You know, if, if they had something that wasn't in the bag of magic tricks that you brought with you, there was no resources in the area. I met one person needed an x-ray and we had to send them to this place. He said, well, this is place you can go get an x-ray. So they went and got the x-ray, came back the next day and had a broken arm. And I put a box on it, you know, to fix it and take it up. I saw a kid with a bad heart murmur and it was like, there's nothing for him. And I didn't even tell the mother because he was asymptomatic and it either was going to be something that would never bother him or it might affect him down the road. But I think, I don't know if it was morally correct, but I thought better not to even think about it. You know, there's nothing they can do about it and why treat him differently. Um, so it, it seemed a little useless. And after we were done in a week, you know, people have chronic illnesses okay, now what? You know, you kind of, it wasn't a bad thing, but it wasn't something long-term. And I learned out many years ago when I was doing my twinning thing, looking outside, I had this group of doctors coming down on one of these medical trips and they kind of came through the town and they were stopped at a Paris, get something to eat. And they're all like in a hurry, we need to go and do our thing. And they were now like, okay, fine guys, you know, relax a little bit. But they were like off there. Then they went to their clinic and they were you know, seeing people and they weren't stopping to eat lunch. And I really didn't get to know the people. And outside the clinic, I was talking to people. And I guess, hey, you know, what you doing? You know, you going to see the doctor? Are you sick? Oh, no, we just heard there was a doctor in town. And we just thought we'd see if we can get some free medicines or something for later. So a lot of these people just come and mm. saying stuff. And I realized back then that people were, it's kind of vague, some of the complaints. So they're just trying to get us some medicines to hang on for later on. But um, when I was there, I really was intrigued by the Haitian people. And I had a couple experiences, some I write in the book. One was of these kids standing by this big metal water tank, like, and actually I thought they were like waiting for school and urinating outside, but (laughs) they were just standing up looking against it. You know, why would someone be like that? But they were actually had some rocks and they were doing organic chemistry on this thing. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, I was a chemistry major. Like, this is pretty intense stuff. I'm impressed. You know, you think, well, these are just some kind of like little Haitian kids or something, but they were doing some, some chemistry, but they had rocks and they were just doing it on the side of the metal to use it as a chalkboard. But yeah, I, just, I remember I, reading, I remember reading that in your book and just being fascinated by it. And I think you made the mention of when's the last time, uh, not only did you ever see that, or do you think you would ever see students in the United States doing something like that, writing chemistry exactly. equations on the side of uh, a water, a what, what was it, a water tank, a metal like a tank? Metal tank, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, can you see them doing that anywhere outside of a, a classroom or right. uh, their home, right? I mean, no, probably. So that was like their homework. But I just, the, the Haitian people are just so unique. Anyone's ever been to Haiti, I know you got Latin America. Haiti is very different. It's a little piece of Africa, in the in the central in, in South Central America, it's a different culture. 
um, because of the history of the slaves being brought in, the slaves, the, it's the first black republic and the first, the, the only people has ever freed themselves from slavery and then continued to like, um, you know, have their freedom. Um, but they have a very, and if you study public health and you look at some like demographics, like poor water, poor health, nutrition, diseases, there's 50 countries that are always in the top 50. They're mostly Africa. They used to be India. China used to be there too. But they're mostly African countries. Haiti's usually in there in the top 25 or 50. It just, you know. And, and, in terms of the poorest countries? Yeah. Any kind of problem, not just poor, but, you know, malaria outbreaks, child mortality, you know, poor water, access to poor water, you know, poor jobs, any kind of public health sort of thing. They're kind of in there. They're always in there and somewhere. Yeah. So um, uh, reading your book uh, and also just, you know, learning this in other ways, uh, Haiti's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. And um, a lot of people are aware of that, or at least know that they're near the bottom and, and that uh, they've always had a lot of challenges in, in, in anybody's life history here. Uh, but what are some of the people, um, what are some of the things people should know about Haiti that they probably don't? Haiti's, you know, that's like, people say that's the subtitle of, uh, you know, of a Haiti, like Haiti, quote, the poorest country in the Western hemisphere, you know, and it's just it right. kind of flows together and it's probably true, but Haiti's fascinating. The history is fascinating. First of all, the only uh, enslaved people had ever freed themselves and continued to be free. So, and there's a whole story on that. S uh, some other things that the, the uh, history of Haiti and the history of the United States and the, and the um, revolution are very closely uh, entwined. And this people don't really know. For instance, um, because during the revolutionary war, um, the, it was the United States against the, the English. And of course, the French and the English don't like them. So the French and the English don't get together. So the U.S. employed French people to help them in the revolution. And France had Haiti. So there were Haitians. If you go to Savannah, Georgia right now in one of the markets, the public market, you'll see a statue of the Haitians that fought during the revolution. So Haitians actually fought during the American Revolution with the French to help win the Battle of Savannah, Georgia. Also, um, so Haiti freed, Haiti got its independence in 1804. As you know, uh, France had the Louisiana Purchase, which is New Orleans, but it's like a third of the United States. It was the Mississippi all the way up to, I don't know, like North Dakota and all that. I mean, it's a yeah. spot of land. At the same time, as the Haitian Revolution, the, the, the Haitians were trying to free themselves from French colonialists, was Napoleon and the French Revolution. So there was, Napoleon was fighting this thing on two fronts. It had the French Revolution in France and it had the Haitian Revolution in France. And finally the, <coughs> the Haitians won. And um, in New Orleans and in, well, mostly New Orleans, but Louisiana Purchase was mostly New Orleans, had slaves as well. And the Haitians exported that revolution to some of the slaves in the, in the French colonies of New Orleans. And they started revolting also and causing trouble for the French. Now, Fr Napoleon just lost Haiti. 
And New Orleans is starting to do the same thing and it needs resources. Now, what's more important to it? The French Revolution in France or this crazy new world thing? So they said, well, let's sell it to Thomas Jefferson, the president at the time. So we got the Louisiana Purchase for what, like $4 million? Mainly because of this Haitian uh, revolt that was exported to New Orleans and causing trouble for Napoleon. He sold it to us. It's like you know, a huge chunk of our country. We kind of owe it somehow to the to the Haitian Revolution. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. It's a very complicated uh, history. Uh, United States has a complicated history as well. But uh, I, I think I read this was I think a little synopsis you put in the book as well. Um, First of all, I think the United States, even though, right, that helped us out getting all that land from the French because they were trying not to have so many problems on so many fronts, not to mention, you know, a lot of times we forget in the context of world history, they had, we had, you know, there was the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French, and then the Portuguese were a major power, right? So they were all battling with each other all over the world. The Americas just being, you know, one spot that was causing problems. Um, But it's interesting uh, you know, I wasn't so aware until I read it in your book that you mentioned, you know, I and mean, then you just said it right now about the Haitians helping uh, us in Savannah. But that was more because they were part of the French at that Correct. time. Right. And yeah. so that was the French were our ally against the British. Uh, very cu- interesting how that works. Now, I don't know this part. Was that were the, were the Haitians, were they black Haitians like uh, yes. African descent that were helping us? Yes, that I guess when I say Haitians, that's exactly right. I mean, they were the, yeah. So this is actually this is a kind of a two-edged sword. So first of all, where Haiti is is on the island of Hispaniola. The entire island is Hispaniola, and you may know this, people. That's where Christopher Columbus first landed. In fact, mm-hmm. Nina Pinta and Santa Maria. I can't remember which one. I think it was the Nina. It actually on the maiden voyage on Christmas Day. It was going around the island of Hispaniola and it crashed. One of them got aground and it smashed in the waves. And they had to kind of set up a little fort in a place called La Natividad. It's actually in Haiti, but it's got a Spanish name, which means Christmas. And uh, they left these guys there with some supplies. And Christopher Columbus said, you know, we're going to come back to get you. When they came back, they were maybe they went too much with the natives or something. It's kind of like the, mm. you know, the lost colony of Rono type thing. But yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's, was an, a Spanish island, Hispaniola, but French. And the other, the other side of it today is the Dominican Republic. So yeah, now, so now it's split the the two thirds on the East is Dominican Republic to one third on the West is Haiti. Well, what happened that, you know, it was a big island back in the day and that little straits between, between Haiti or Hispaniola in Florida is where all the ships came in, you know, with gold and stuff Mm -hmm. from Mexico. And French pirates were hanging out on that western part and grabbing the ships and stuff. And so then they started sort of colonizing it more. And then there was sort of this battle. The Spanish were like, hey, this is our island. And the French were like, we're going to take this piece. And the French and the Spanish were kind of moving the border between what's now the DR, Dominican Republic, and what's Haiti. Um, and and the, the French would actually teach the Haitian, the black African slaves, how to fight to help with the war. And they also helped in the Revolutionary War. So they were actually, some of them were, were taught how to fight to help fight the Spanish. And they kind of used this because they learned how to fight and they helped them. But then they actually used those skills to kick out the French. 
And actually, at one point, I understand that the Haitians, after they got the independence, actually was able to take the entire island from the Spanish. But I, I heard that hmm. once early on, then it went back to how it is now. Interesting. Yeah. And then the other interesting complexity of this is, you know, even though uh, most of our founders, you know, who were involved in the Declaration of Independence and writing the Constitution, even though many of them uh, maybe were hoping that slavery would eventually end in, in the United States, a lot of them still had uh, slaves themselves. They had a lot of economic interests tied up in slavery. And so I also understand that uh, it wasn't until after our U.S. Civil War in the 1860s that we was the first time we actually recognized Haiti yeah. as its own independent nation. And, and the Haitian Revolution uh, was what in the early like 1807 or something like that. Well, 1804 is when they won. Exactly. I think they, may, they may have started in the late 1700s, you know, and yeah. but 1804 is when they finally got the independence. Probably yeah, so that's a long, we're talking 60 years. We're talking uh, more than 60 years. That's that's a generation or two uh, removed from the earth before we actually well, recognize Hades, them. Haiti's constitution, their initial constitution, they obviously abolished slavery and they made it that that was like a, a a place that anybody who was enslaved could run off to, you know, so it was a mm, safe yeah. harbor. So people were like, well, you know, if we, it's a, how do you recognize a country that says slavery is illegal when you have slavery? And then also it's a place where people can run away to. So, right. So I guess they didn't want to encourage runaway slaves. Right? Yeah, but, but back, back in the constitution, Oh, 11 of the 13 colonies did not want slavery. Two did, and I think it was South Carolina and Georgia. And actually, Thomas Jefferson had slaves. Um, in in his notes, they have the original notes for the Constitution and the the, uh, the, uh, the amendments. His biggest content was on slavery, saying that this was this was, you know, he understood that this was a a, a stain on the Constitution. And he really put that all men are created. In his notes, he had men capitalizing in hard and black and did. So he he really believed, and many of them believed that slavery needed to go. But in order to keep the union, they just kept it, hoping that eventually the the Constitution would be realized. You know, it finally did. Yeah, there's actually what's interesting is there's no mention of slavery in the Constitution. I think uh, some some slave owners wanted there to be some protections for slavery, and obviously you had the People who were more against slavery that, yeah. that wanted to oust it right then. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes in history we forget that uh, in order to sort of have succeed in one goals, you got to kind of compromise in other things. Even though, you know, looking back, we can all now you know criticize however we yeah. want. Uh, but uh, but you know, they were dealing with uh, a different situation in the world context at the time. And and in the letter to King George, they put the the largest piece was about King George. You're forcing us to take slaves. And there's this 1619 project, which is the first slaves, black slaves that came to the United States. And the story there is actually it was a British ship that attacked the Portuguese. The Portuguese were importing lots of slaves, and uh, this British ship captured this Portuguese and all the goods on it. But they also got the black slaves and brought them to Jamestown and Jamestown said, we don't have slavery. So they were indentured servants for seven years. And then they were released and given land actually. But anyways, this is a long Yeah, story. that's a topic um, for topic. another, uh, let's yeah. get back to, to Haiti let's here. To Haiti. But, so we, we talked about um, you, you getting to Haiti in 1996. 
what was uh what was the actual instance that brought you there was it you said it was something with so, your church so no i i'm a catholic but i was at this free clinic which i worked in this free clinic okay. once a month or something and there was a lady there that was getting who's done lots of leave mission trips and she went to, to jamaica we did that and the next time was to haiti actually the, the haiti trip was in 95 that i went with the medical trip and we were going to go back to Haiti, but there was some issue, some political things going on. They thought it'd be too dangerous. And we went to the island of St. Vincent. But anyways, I just, there's some about the Haitian people. I just, if anyone's gone to Haiti, gets that bug. Most people, I mean, but they're, they're just so, they like to tell stories. They like to joke and, you know, it just felt like a connection there. And they're just kind of just fascinating kind of a culture. And I wanted to do something more relational because when I did the medical thing, I was working my butt off and I never got to meet people because I was so busy doing this other thing. And with that, I lived in Ghana, Virginia and the Diocese of Richmond, Virginia had this Haiti twinning project since 1985, the bishop started. And it was just kind of funny. So the story is kind of funny it's in the book, but someone gave me this letter and I was going to Haiti and I stuck the letter to my book. I said, I'm too busy. I'll read the letter when I get on the plane. And in the letter, it said, this lady's coming to talk about this Haiti twinning project in the Diocese of Richmond. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know the, this woman who gave me the letter knew I was even going to Haiti. So I come back. I said, hey, did you know I'm going to Haiti? No. Where have you been? I said, I just got back from Haiti. You've been to Haiti. I mean, I didn't know. I said, well, I thought you knew. That's why you gave me the letter. No, this person was coming. And I thought you'd be interested I said, yeah. So then she met with us the next week and I was just on fire. Man, I'm in Haiti. You want to do this twinning thing? It sounds relational. That's just exactly where I am. And I, we, we still remain friends to this day. That's Adele, Del Bell Roth. And she's got the actually the, um, the foreword in both books and a little thing on the back. But uh, so, you know, that was an easy sell. She came to the meeting trying to sell it. And then this guy was like, like attacking me about Haiti. Well, it must have been, uh, you know, maybe God knowing you were going to do that or the universe in some it's way just, speaking. Yeah, speaking it's just <laughs> interesting the way things happen, you know, I mean, just, you know. Um, so, you know, I said, yeah, you know, this. Uh, I just felt like I needed to start with relationship. Now, I'm a physician. I say this in the book, but I put my medical bag down and people to this day say, oh, do you what do you what kind of medicine are you doing down there because i don't really do sometimes i'll see someone who's sick but i don't really go with that intention the core to the whole twinning thing for me anyways is relationship getting to know people and the interesting thing is how the relationship has guided the project and you know most communities sort of have a, a sense of what they need if you listen you know and relationships kind of fun i mean getting to know people and seeing things that just took me on this adventure and i talked about some of the people i've met in the book and just yeah. things i've seen and just you know and not everything they tell you though is perfect i mean there's been things they wanted to do and i'm like no i'm not doing that you know they wanted to build a social hall or something and i was like well that's a good idea but i'm not sure that's something that i want to do just yet that might be good for the church and you know but for the most part, it's basically started with education, paying the teachers, lunches, clean water, which led to public health, which, you know, and I started doing community meetings and, and then jobs and economics and, and healthcare, but with local people, 
And I call it, my words, I call it building people power. Um, one, this is something I want to say because this is kind of a concept that I tell people and with your classes. So if you look at a system, you know, any kind of a system could be a machine, could be a biologic system. There has to be a source of energy that sustains the system. So for an automobile, you need gasoline. It could be a Corvette. You ain't got gasoline. You're not going anywhere. You know, the earth requires the sun. If the sun dies, there's no source that keeps everything, you know, the plants and everything going. Um, uh, with us, it's food. Um, but with a community, with, with certain community projects, you want to look at the source of energy. And then Haiti, at one time, Haiti was called the NGO capital or NGO uh, uh, country or something because it's like hundreds of NGOs, people with projects and stuff. But what keeps those NGOs going is the funding, the outside funding. And I, the stories of just these NGOs that do good things, but then the funding dries up and they leave. So you need to find a source of energy that's going to be sustainable, it's going to stay there forever. And the source of that energy is what I call human power. The power of the individual human being is the same, whether you're American, African, European, Chinese, whatever. That human potential, that energy that's inside a human being is the energy you want to tap into. And the sustainable, now, even I'm not sustainable in Haiti because I'm probably not going to be going there forever, even though I'll be going for a while. But the community, the people in the community that have an invested interest, that's the energy you got to tap into. And that's when we started doing some training and trying to find local leadership and things like that. And yeah, your story, the, the, the story you recount in the book is uh, very fascinating because, uh, you know, you, you know, the way I followed it, you, you go there, uh, you start building some relationships. Uh, now, what's interesting for people that uh, maybe you can explain quickly uh, the twinning uh, project, which this is sort of the where you adopt like a sister parish or a sister diocese or something. Tell us a little bit about yeah. how that works from your perspective as a parishioner of your church in uh, Salem, Virginia. Yeah. Um, so there's a, actually a group out of Nashville, Tennessee, um, Teresa Patterson, who does twinning programs, uh, twinning program, parish twinning of Haiti. And she does parish twinning of the Americas too, but it's mostly Haiti. And then there's, there's dioceses and different churches that do this. The idea of a twinning thing is that you know, our parish, OLPH is our Lady of Perpetual Help. It's a long name. It's twinned with this, well, it's twinned with a parish in Las Cahobas, which is a, a fairly good-sized village. Um, and the idea is this community is twinned with this community. And these projects vary. What happened with my project is I took it like past the level because a lot of them just do a little thing. Maybe they sack ceremonial and maybe they send a little money and go down once in a while or it fades when one of the, the leaders goes away. But the, the basic idea, I think, and from a Catholic standpoint, the key to the Catholic, they say this, the source and the summit of the faith is the Eucharist, you know, when you celebrate the mass. And so I kind of feel it's a connection between, you know, you celebrate the Eucharist at your church and you're offering this up for everyone, and but in a and it's sort of a theoretical, theological thing. But when you have a twinning relationship, like that's a real, you know, I can't like put my arms around the world, 
but I can plant my flag in one place. And so this is a real tangible, we are really connected with this group down here, different place, different language, different culture, you know, different situation, different history, but in a real way, we're connected and it kind of brings that thing together. And then by building that relationship, you know, and I talk about in this book, it leads to commitment to the project. At one point I talk about in the book, I mean, I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna, I have no power to, to do what they asked me to do. And, but like, here it is, you know, it's, it's so if you step out in faith, you know, it, it kind of keeps going. I guess I have yeah. the luxury of being a physician too. So I have some resource, personal resources, but still things have happened in the book that just kind of come out of nowhere that are just. Well, I remember uh, in the story you were, you were there, maybe on your second or third trip or something. And, and they asked you, uh, we need to build a school. We, we would really want to build a school. Um, and it's going to yeah. take what, 40 or 50,000 dollars, 60,000, which is like a million dollars. Like, wow. You know, I, I was yeah. like, I, I, I haven't got it on me, Padre, you know, and, and no one was, was interested. No one was helping me. Yeah. But what was interesting to me is you, you sat down with, uh, the priest at your church and he said, well, we're trying to build, you know, we're, we've got a fundraising campaign for this and for that. And, you know, the, so your church has needs and your it seemed to me, you knew your church had needs, but you were seeing these people in desperate poverty with some real needs, uh, yeah. that almost superseded anything we could even imagine. Um, and, and what was nice is that your priest didn't really have the, I don't think he had, it didn't sound like he had the faith that you were going to be able to pull it off. Uh, but you, he did give you the opportunity to go in front, uh, of the church and make your case. And and it seemed like you attracted some, some, some resources from some of your parishioners. Well, what I did was I said, I asked him, could, could I at least have permission to try? And he's like, sure. You know, but like, you ain't going to do nothing. I mean, he didn't say it, but that was kind of like the thing. And so I talked to people who were fundraisers and talked, oh, that you can make a dinner. So I made this dinner and I did things. I had people there and people gave me money. You know, people gave me money. And uh, so we collected even more. It's like the loaves and the fishes. I mean, we bought 60, I think I ended up with 90,000. We're going to build a five classrooms in a building and eight classroom school um, that school is now 20 years old and i have to put a new roof on it <laughs> but um and, the, and then i met with the priest afterwards and he said he actually said we had a little dinner i said i don't believe it i said you have to have faith you know <laughs> he really did yeah believe. and then, well then, well yeah. what what was what was your faith uh like before uh you got involved with this project before you ever went to Haiti, maybe. Um, and how has maybe your faith evolved and, 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 and yeah. what is that like now? So, yeah, I was always, you know, I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic school through high school and college. I was in a, a state school and I did go to church, but I wasn't going to church all the time. And then in medical school, I was with a group of people and, uh, and I did go to church quite often. And then I had some kids and, you know, I was more, a little more involved in the church. So my faith was kind of growing. Um, and, 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 and just, I don't know, sometime it's probably around the time 
that I went to Haiti, I think it was after my visit, I read a book on St. Francis. And I was telling you this because your name is Francesco. Yes. And I, and I read this book on Fra- St. Francis. I knew kind of a little about it, but I was like, oh, yeah, I read this little book. And I just like, I love this guy. I mean, he just kind of reminded me, maybe it's the Italian thing or just crazy <laughs> sort of wild and crazy kind of guy just did stuff. He wanted to live the gospel life and just went out and did it. And so I became what they call a secular Franciscan. So my secular Franciscan journey is kind of part of, it's it's parallel with my Haiti and they've complemented each other. And secular Franciscans, actually there's groups within the Catholic church, you know, religious people, like they're nuns and there's monks and friars, Franciscans are friars. But at the time of St. Francis, he was going around preaching and revitalizing the church. Live the gospel, live the gospel. You know, you are good people. At the time, you were good if you were like a priest or a monk, but the people were kind of slobs, you know, and they're kind of, they're having families and, you know, sexual relationship was thought to be maybe even sinful, but you had to do it to reproduce. And But he was saying, no, you guys are good too. And work is good. And you raising your family and you can, so he, he evangelized the world saying that you say evangelize the marketplace that the work you do is good as well. Um, and so at the time that he started his order with monks who were celibate men, um, there were people who were married that wanted to follow him too. And he said, well, you can't, you know, you're married. You can't just be a celibate guy here, but you can, we'll write a rule for you. You can live this rule and you could be part of our group in the secular world. And their job is to be prayerful, but live the gospel. They're like 10% prayerful and 90% in the world, preaching the gospel. And as Francis said, preach the gospel, but if necessary, use words. So it's more of a, an active um, evangelization, not beating people over the head with you know, scripture or something. It's more acting out you know, your faith. And that's kind of what I've done. When I went down to some groups with, um, other religious groups, they seem to kind of well, like, are you going to accept Jesus? And da, 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 da. And like, these people don't need this. They, they know they've got more faith than I do. You know, um, you just, they, they see you and they should hopefully say, when I see that guy, I see someone who's, who's working the gospel and stuff. But, but yeah, I mean, this has really been part of my journey. And I've, people have said this, and if you've done mission work, it's not so much that I've helped them as they've helped me, you know, I mean, I've helped them with some material things, but the stuff I've seen and learned and it's in the, the second book too, just, um, and you know, the examples that they show you is really. Yeah. Good. So Dr. Fame, you mentioned in the book, uh, you say Haitians have joy in the midst of unbelievable suffering. Can you explain yeah. that to us? Yeah, you know, it's like the stories. You'll hear, you see people and then you'll find out that, I mean, in public health, about 10% of children die by the age of six because of one of three things, pneumonia, diarrhea, or malaria. And, and, and you know, that's like, that's an African thing, but it's bad places in Haiti as well. And you'll hear that. Oh, yeah, you know, I had a child, but he died of pneumonia. Or, or well, when, when one person was trying to get to the U.S., so the, the dad was trying to kick the boat across and he didn't make it, got sent back. And the wife had had a baby, but while he was gone, the baby died of diarrhea or something. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, that baby, you know, and obviously there's, I've seen funerals when people die and people are upset over it, but they just talk about it. And it's just like a, uh, 
it's just a you know a fact of life. Death is just something that they just move on. But so and you know the hunger. And one guy was telling me that you know he hadn't he would come home for lunch, and his mom had no a food for him, so she would feed him salt water. That would mm. make him thirsty, so he would drink a bunch of water. It would, that would just fill him up with water. And there's a thing called earth dirt bread or earth bread that they would mix dirt with flour to make bread, and that's what they would give people. I mean, but yet they just joke around. They tell stories that relationships really important, and uh, it just uh, it seemed like in your book. In your book, it seemed um, there was a lot centered around the family and then around the community yeah. that, that, that there was a lot more life that you would, you would see <laughs> yeah. between a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it was, in the early days of Las Cahobas, it was just a quiet little village. After the earthquake, when roads were built, a lot of people moved out of the city back to these villages. And now it's crowded. There's motorcycles, it's noisy, but mm. in the, back in the day, it was just quiet and you'd walk around at night and people out there and you'd meet people and talk to people. Um, but, uh, I can't, where was I going with this thing? But, but you just see everything. I mean, here, crazy people are put away in institutions or something, but there I have some stories of people in the, I'd go around the marketplace and I didn't know who these people were, but I was like, some crazy people would grab me and take me down the street and people kind of laughing, you know, who's he with? I'm like, I don't know. This guy's take me down. The one guy was playing music for me that, (laughs) And, uh, well, like you know, it's interesting too. Oh, go ahead. Just, just to see everything. And it kind of reminds me of the scripture. You know, you read these stories like he saw this demonic, someone possessed, you know, he's in the marketplace. And on those early days, it's like, this is just like scripture. I mean, you realize that, you know, now we institutionalize, we, we clean it all up. We put people in different places, but there it's just all out. And everybody knows, oh, that's the crazy person. And, oh yeah, this is this little person that wanders around that we just sort of take care of that has no place to go. We talk about it and uh, it just, it's just all out there. And the second book, I have a few stories about people like that, that I met too. Um, and interesting thing, um, this one person in the story, I'm not going to ruin the story in the first book, but I didn't know what she had until it's a public health course, but she had congenital hypothyroidism, uh, a lack of iodine while she was developing a mother. So for, for pennies, this person was, mentally retarded for the rest of her life just because wow. of not having the little iodine we put in salt, you know, because up in the mountains, you're away from the sea where iodine is. So mm. it's just sad to think, wow, something as like little as iodine or salt, if you're pregnant, can make a huge difference. A person is mentally retarded for the rest of their lives. You know, something I was thinking about, I know you read, you wrote this book, the first one in 2008, and um, you've been going there since the mid 1990s. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of changes in the world, including, especially in the United States, uh, with these little smartphone devices. We're doing this podcast over Zoom right now. Um, And so technology has brought a lot of people together. It's also provided a lot of, you know, more resources, uh, being a lot more connected and everything. Uh, Have you seen in the 25 plus years that you've been going there, have you seen any ways that technology uh, has has helped or or even just impacted life there in different ways? Yeah. So I don't know if I had this in the first book, but there was a thing called that there was a one phone company in Haiti called Teleco Teleco. 
and they had like in Cabezco, in Las Cajobas, they had like a telegraph office and it had three telephone booths. And this was Telego Las Cajobas. And I would call up to speak to the priest and I'd call up and I'd say, hey, is, is Father Ramon there? Yeah, listen, I'm going to go grab him and then you call back in 20 minutes. <laughs> One time I called back and I said, is Herman there? And no, he's he's in New York. In New York? What do you mean? Did you want the Herman that sells the lotto tickets? No, I don't want the lo- Herman that sells the lotto tickets. I want Father Herman. But I mean, so that's how it was. You'd call the phone, they'd grab him, and he'd come in, wait there. Then you'd call back and they would say, okay, Herman, booth number three is Tom. And then he would come and you'd talk to him. So that's how phones were. It was very unreliable, you know, and kind of expensive too. And well, what then, about what about now got, or the most recent well, now they, time? Then they got cell phones, right? So they got cell phones were starting to come in. That was really great. Yeah. <laughs> For a while, they had these really cheap cell phones that just basic cheapy flip phones. And when they first had them out, it would drive you crazy because everybody was playing the little tone. Things. And I was like, would you stop playing that phone tone? It was just, they were so enamored by it. They kept playing these funky little electronic tones. And where I was at that time when cell phones came out in the, that valley, you had to take a mule out. There was nine kilometers by mule or walk. There's no telephone out there. And you really couldn't even get cell phone service. But there was a spot on the hill you could sort of catch a signal. And you'd go up there at nine o'clock because that's when the rates were a little cheaper. And you see all these, it's dark, but you see these little cell phone lights out and people are like walking on the hill, finding the signal. And they were, we used to call it Teleco Cabby Store because it was like, <laughs> you know. And well, that's funny you say that because, you know, uh, I've been living in Guatemala most of this year and um, I haven't really had, you know, the experiences like, like you've had with uh, a lot of these uh, uh, much more impoverished people that you've been helping. Uh, through charitable works. But one as I do talk to people and ask about the history here, you know, when people think of places like Guatemala or Haiti, right, they, they feel like some people feel like, oh, it might be unsafe or it might be dangerous or things like that. Now, um, I I feel perfectly fine in Guatemala. I've been here, you know, for the most part since uh, March, almost almost six months uh, with a little break in between um, back in back in Florida. But um, one as I talk to people about what have you seen in terms of improvements? Uh, for example, there's a, there's a friend that I've made here. Uh, she's been living in Guatemala since the 1970s. She's American, um, and 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 people like that. You know, different types of people that I've talked about because Guatemala for 30 something years went through a civil war uh, that was from like the 1960s to 1990s. But people had to go on with everyday life. You know. Uh, people still went to the grocery store. They still went to work, things like that. There was just all this craziness happening uh, around. And sometimes there would be, you know, heightened tensions of different things. But um, one of the challenges Guatemala's had is obviously there's a lot of ethnic differences with people that more of Spanish descent, people from indigenous uh, descent. You have um, probably 60 percent of the country that lives in, you know, um, Poverty to extreme poverty, probably 10% live pretty well off, and then maybe a 10% in the middle of that that are that are kind of in the middle. But um, one of the things that somebody told me, a few people have now told me, is, you know, the biggest difference in the last 40, 50 years has been cell phones. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, you've got, you've had different iterations of different types of government here. You've had some of those governments operating within the Cold War 
uh, context uh, during some of that time, especially in the 60s through the 80s. Um, and so you had, you know, American CIA down here. You had all sorts of people trying to help with different situations. Uh, but they said, you know, when those um, so there was all these guerrillas out there in the mountains and they would oftentimes attack a lot of these indigenous uh, populations who were poor and had no connections and no security. Uh, they said, but you know what, when those folks got cell phones, now they had a connection to the outside world. Now they could call security. Now they could call police. Now they can get the word out. Now they could actually figure out what the heck was going on in the world, things they might have had access to that they didn't realize they did. Um, so that's really fascinating. And, you know, I thought about uh, this is actually interesting, too, when we're talking about philanthropy and entrepreneurship, because for many years, uh, you know, Steve Jobs, a lot of people gave him a hard time because he wasn't personally involved in any charitable um Right. things like Bill Gates, right? And they right. say, well, Bill Gates has the Gates Foundation. And he's doing all these things. And, and and you know, I don't think Steve Jobs said, well, I mean, that's great that he's doing that. That's that's, not, that's just not my thing that drives me. I'm changing the world through these devices, yeah. right? Like, yeah. And when I hear these stories, I thought, wow, you know what? Like we could probably spend billions of dollars on charity and pot and all, and it's, they're all coming from places of good intention. But you create something like the smartphone that literally can change the world, especially for those, um, you know, who, uh, who really need that change. Uh, so I kind of thought about that, you know, that's a way that entrepreneurs uh, can be, you know, positively impactful on the world. It wasn't just that, I don't think, I don't think Steve Jobs was driven uh, by making money. I think he was really driven by impact on what he was doing to further technology and all these sorts of things. Uh, now, I've heard a lot of and I've read a lot of uh, crazy things. Steve Jobs had a very uh, almost bipolar personality. You might not want to be around him most of the time, but uh, but he did. Uh, uh, I, you know, I think it's safe to say he did. Uh, he did change the world, uh, um, hopefully for the better. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree that cell phones have been a huge change. And for me, you know, I couldn't. I have I don't know if the story. No, the story on the earthquakes in the second book. But, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't get anybody. I'll kind of ruin this one little story, but I couldn't, I couldn't call anybody, you know, because all, all communication was down. I had one priest friend that was in a very rural place, and the parish that was twinned with him really wanted to talk with him. That was their major thing. So they set up um, a satellite internet with solar panels. So he had solar panels, and he had a satellite internet. So I was able to email him. So that was, I was able to contact him through email because he had, he was self-sufficient off the grid with the solar panels because that's the only way to be in Haiti is off the grid. And, and so that was the one person I could contact. I mean, you know, even government people couldn't talk to anybody. And I was able to call him, ask him about a friend of mine. But cell phones have been huge in public health. In Africa, things, they have different ways of, using them for monitoring things and stuff. And my lady who I do public health with, she has a doctor friend that she studied with. And we have this network called uh, community care groups and they'll call her up and she'll go up to the place and monitor the situation. So either make a recommendation, recommendation, she might call her doctor friend right there on the cell phone. He might make a recommendation or say, go to the hospital or something. And so that's a way to really bring healthcare to the area with that a little, like we talked about, that cell phone has been great. And for me, I haven't been able to go down 
and I'm calling all I'm calling all the time on my cell phone. You know, thank God I've got I've got a little phone. Are you able Are you able to sort of um, help people there, sort of through telemedicine or anything? No, that's what she sort of again. I I I don't do that stuff myself. I mean, Haitian. There's Haitian. I try to utilize local resources. So there's a Haitian doctor there, you know. And in fact, I, I don't remember some stories in the second book, but things have happened. But um, so she she talks to that guy, you know, and they know Haitian medicine. I think there's a story in the first book when I went to that hospital at St. Therese and that guy, I just went to visit this hospital and some guy drove up there and he was he was Haitian American from Brooklyn. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just looking at this hospital. It's like nobody here, you know, there's no, no staff or nothing. And he's like, well, I got a, uh, a cousin who's in the hospital I'm visiting. He said, if you're a doctor, come up. I said, well, I'll come up. But you know, I don't know if I'm on Haitian medicine. I mean, parasites, stuff. I don't know. So I saw this guy and I'm like, I got the story. They thought he had tuberculosis. gave him medicine. He had this funky rash. I'm like, this is a Stevens Johnson reaction. This is something I know about. It's an allergy reaction. And his name was Dieu Sauvé. It means God saves me. It's what God did save you because a lot of people die from this thing. But at this point, you're over it, just like keep it clean and let it heal. But um, uh, you know, back then there was just there was just like nothing. Yeah, well, you know, let, speaking of healthcare, you know, I know that when you first went there, you helped um, get some funding so that the folks there could help. They could build a school, and then you, uh, then they said, "Well, we need to pay some teachers." So you raised some money to help to help get some teachers pay. But but then you moved into doing things in in uh, healthcare and public health. Uh, obviously, we introduced you. You're a physician uh, in Salem, Virginia. Um, you know. Probably every single one of us in some dimension complains about healthcare or the healthcare system, whether it's cost or timing or whatever it is. Access. Uh, the way we, the way, yeah, access, the way we pay everything. Um, what can you tell us um, about uh, healthcare in Haiti first? And then what can you, what is sort of based on that experience mostly, what is one thing about the US healthcare system? Um, or the way we get healthcare in the United States that w- that we should be more more grateful for. Yeah. Um, wow. Healthcare in Haiti. You know, it's just the way it works in Haiti is this. I mean, I, there's not a lot of healthcare centers. There are some physicians, but the way it usually works out there is if you get sick, there are local people that know herbal things, and I always wanted to like document their stuff. I'm like, there's maybe something in these herbs they do, but they know kind of, I've seen they do some chiropractic stuff with back injuries and muscle because people do hard physical work. So a lot mm-hmm. of them know this stuff that kind of looks like a chiropractor and our physical therapist, they, and it really seems to work. And they know all these roots and herbs and stuff and teas. And one time they gave me a tea, I had diarrhea. And I'm like, well, I don't know about this stuff, but I'll try it. And it seemed to work, you know? And, and um, people swear by it. So first they go to this guy, this local healer, you know, and it's just something that's passed down through generations. Many of them are called doctor, doctors. Um, and, and if that works fine, and then if they have money, they can go to a clinic somewhere or a hospital. But like this one place that I went to, St. Therese, I mean, sick people were there in this building, but there was no, it wasn't working. It just were hanging out. And sometimes it's just a place for you to go and your relatives are taking care of you. And maybe if you can get a doctor to come and see you, they make a recommendation. 
and there's no nursing. You're kind of doing the nursing care. A lot of that's changed. Paul Farmer, you've probably heard about an American physician from Duke, and then he went to Harvard. And he does a lot of work in Haiti, but he also does work in, in uh, uh, Peru and Africa and um, Russia with initially with tuberculosis and AIDS. And he has a big hospital near me and a big hospital system. And I always say I'm, I'm in his donut hole because he's got like hospitals and clinics sort of around where my little clinic is. Because on one side of my clinic is a big lake and then I got the valley and then there's a, a road into the valley, but he's got stuff around it. But um, so that's, so for us, there's places to go if you can get there. But there's really not much healthcare for most people. There's no insurance, you know, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and uh, back to the, the, the teachers. So we had the schools, we had the teachers. The teachers need to get paid. And it was hard to raise money for the teacher's salary. So I started an endowment fund, which is now $1.1 million. And that produces enough income. So my whole thing is sustainability. I mean, if I don't, if I died, what's going to happen to the teachers? But I got an endowment fund now, and that's creating money to pay the salaries of my teachers, some of the workers at the school, and now my healthcare worker, and that kind of thing. And that sustains the project. That's that source of energy that that'll keep going to pay their salaries because there's no Blue Cross Blue Shield or those sorts of things. And the other thing, looking around, when I went from the town of Las Cahobas, they had a little chapel out in the country. Um, and Cabe store, and that became a parish. So I moved the project out there because that's where my first school was. But I thought education and feeding, and then there was a need for clean water when we were out there because there was no water. I started thinking public health and then went to study public health. And really, you know, there's a story, I think in my next book about the earthquake and there was something on CBS about some girl that got her head bashed in. They flew her to the ship Hope and the, the doctor that's on CNN as a brain surgeon you know, took the blood out and cured her and, you know, did a little rehab and she was back and everyone's clapping and then they flew her back to the slum where she was, which had poor water. I'm like, you know, dysentery and cholera. So it's kind of like, okay, it was really kind of cool, but you know, public health, things we take for granted, that's the foundation of things. And so then I went and studied public health and we're doing this public health thing now. And it's, it's I think, doing more good than a clinic with medication. I think you have to start with the foundation first. We, we forget how important the water system in our community is. You know, I mean, you kind of drive yeah. by this thing and some guy works at the water plant, like whatever. But I mean, if we didn't have that, we're in trouble. Well, I'm drinking bottled water almost everywhere I go. Oh, right good. Guatemala, you know? <laughs> that's so, good. Uh, I do. I do agree with you. I think that's one of the things. It, I mean, maybe that's the thing. But I was going to add, you know, just to, that final question is, you know, what what is it in, uh, if uh, those of us who live in, the, in a place like the United States, uh, when it comes to the healthcare system or just healthcare in general, um, what what is it that what is it that we really should be most grateful for that we kind of take for granted? I mean, we just have access to everything, you know, just every, it's almost too much. And I'm a physician. It's kind of my business and stuff, but sometimes we overutilize, you know, the healthcare system in some way. And um, uh, public health, uh, being a physician and then studying public health was fascinating because medicine is about one person at a time. You're sick. Let me figure out what's going on and help you. 
public health is community things like, oh, why are all these people getting sick? What's going on that's making that happen? Let's see if we can solve that problem. And when I look back, you know, again, I just went down and said, okay, I'm a doctor, but I'm going to do relationships. They want a school, make some sense. Teachers need pay, make some sense. Feed the kids, make some sense. Clean water. But education is the foundation of public health and, you know, nutrition, right? And then clean water. So these things that I wasn't really thinking of, like I'm doing a doctory thing, but I was adding to the health of the community. And now a lot of these kids that I had in my school are the ones that are now, we're studying a business where I realized almost all of them had gone to my school, you know, back in the day. And oh, that's now they're that's older great. And that we've sent them on to training and they're, they're becoming the leaders of the community. So I'm building this little nidus of leadership with these people with training for jobs. And the jobs, you know, people say, you're not really doing economic development. I said, well, I'm not opening up a Walmart, you know, or a factory with t-shirts, but we had community meetings. And, you know, if you think about the way, you know, we didn't just drop into the industrial revolution. Back in the day, we had, you know, the, the, the guy that ground the, the, the water mill that ground your wheat. And we had the, uh, the guy, the, 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 the blacksmith shop and the little person that sold some things and the farmers that bartered. So this is what we're dealing with out there is like back in, you know, 1500 or something. And so we asked the people, you know, what sorts of things do you want? What sorts of jobs and services? And now we have a grinding mill. And that guy's gone from grinding corn. When he's not grinding corn, now he's got a little street side shop. And now he built a pond in his backyard. He's doing fish. So this guy's got it. We, we trained a lady to do sewing and she, she kind of got pregnant and left. We had to find another person. We got some people doing agriculture and they're selling trees. So that's reforesting things and they're making money. We're reforesting. Farmers are getting trees that produce things. Um, got the public health person, got someone welding. So different, different things like that that I need in the area. But I guess um, we take for granted the public health things. And some of the things I'm doing in Haiti wouldn't work in the United States. I mean, we don't really work together like this. So this we have these, uh, this care group thing, which is really powerful, where we've got a network, 120 volunteers. Each volunteer represents a dozen households. And they meet 15 of them together each week, every other week. And so every two weeks, we get information about what's going on in the valley, and we spread out. They learn things, and they spread it back out. So it's information in, and it's knowledge going back out to every household. And if you want to make a community healthy, you have to involve the entire community, not just like people just around the clinic or something. And are, are those volunteers, are they local Haitians as well? Yep. So that's the first job I had my public health gal do after she graduated from school. And again, it was a Haitian school of public health, one of the first in the country. And uh, so, yeah, they're all, so we took the entire Valley. We mapped it. I'm not going through the stories in the book. It's kind of funny too, but they never made a map. So they didn't quite know how to make a map, but basically we grouped into little groupings of 12 households that are kind of clustered together. And for each of those 12 households, there's one care group volunteer 15 of those care group volunteers forms a care group. So you got 15 people representing 12 houses. So 15 times 12 is 180. So when that care group meets, 180 households are represented. And that might be 600, 800 people, depending on people in the houses. And you can get data, like how many people are pregnant, sick, died, whatever you need, new births. And then they get training. And then they go out to those, their little household and they teach those people. 
And they're also like with cell phones now, one will call up Joe's, my public health person. I've got a second one in school now. She needs help. <clears throat> and they'll say, hey, Joe's, I got a problem up here. And she might be able to deal with the cell phone or she'll go up the mountain, see the person, talk to the doctor, get some information, decide what to do with it. So it's, a, it's like a way to triage. And with most public health, people study things in public health, all kinds of different things. And in a very controlled way, Johns Hopkins will do this study and find out that this thing works really good. People talk about, you know, stoves that use less charcoal or whatever. And in a very, you know, controlled environment from an experiment, it works. But then you try to introduce it into community and it doesn't get introduced because it's hard to spread it out. But with this, with this group, when, for instance, when COVID hit, I called her up and I said, COVID, get people together. Okay, boom, boom, boom. She's got the control, these, these groups. She was able to pass out information to everybody. We give out vitamin D or deworming. She can tell, or vaccinations. She can give it out to, ev- transfer this information to everybody. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And it's, it's interesting because you were talking about, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, like some of the technology or some of the ways of doing things seem like, you know, back in the 1500s or something. And I noticed uh, in the book here, you you said on one of your first flights to Haiti, you know, these pilots like to, you know, joke around sometimes on the on the yeah. intercom. And one of them the, said, the first flight to Haiti. <laughs> yeah, the one of them said, uh, adjust your clocks for local time, turn your clocks back 200 years. Um, kind of a joke, but also kind of sad. Um, but, you know, speaking of all the work, you mentioned all the NGOs and all the uh, all the phil- philanthropy that's going on uh, in Haiti. Um, uh, I mentioned to you before the interview here, a, a book I read a few years back called Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton. And yeah. one of the main points he makes is that a lot of times, um, you know, so a lot of us might see government as a uh, you know, some say, okay, we'll get a, get a government spending or government welfare, this or that to help people, safety nets, all these things. But, you know, there's a lot of people, myself included, that might say, well, you know, too much government, um, you're going to make people dependent on government, right? So we turn to the private sector and we turn to private charity as one of the ways to help people in need. But Robert Lupton even points out that even private charity um, can make people dependent. And in fact, yeah. He's got some stories in there from Haiti and other uh, uh, places more in the developing world um, and how these charitable groups come in there. And, you know, they all of a sudden there's now an economy of dependency on charity, on NGOs. What I found fascinating in your book and and I and um, was that whether you had read that book or not, um, it seemed like some of the examples you like pointed out were. It seemed like you almost learned this directly from some of the people in the community that said, hey, you know, um, you said, should I bring people down here to help you build a school? And and they said, actually, we want to build our own school. What we really need is the funding and the resources. But these we need people here that want to be employed to build the school. We want people right. here to be employed to teach at the school. We don't exactly. need to be bringing a bunch of outside people. Exactly. So tell us a little bit more about uh, what you think about, you know, this concept of toxic charity and, and maybe some of the examples that you've seen yeah. firsthand. So, yeah, exactly. And now, so I can, I think it's just the way I think, you know, I guess I'm kind of a, being in, in America, it's like the place of do your thing, you know, not have someone help you. And, and uh, 
it, it's just the way I always thought about things. You know, these these are, these aren't helpless people. You know, these aren't children. And a lot of church groups would come down with these construction groups, and they go down, and it's kind of a nice thing, you know, to go down and they built your school, and you know, da 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 da. But I mean, these aren't stupid people. They know this, and there's people that know this, and they want a job. I mean, let's use this. There's, a, I'll tell you some stories. Okay, there was a group in in Haiti, this Haitian guys, and they decided there was a need for streetlights, and they thought, you know, electricity is kind of on and off, so they built these solar streetlights and they're quite beautiful because people know how to weld and they do these somewhat ornate look, looking streetlights. They were quite nice, big streetlights with a solar panel and they were building these things, you know, and selling when they were doing quite well. Well, then the earthquake hit and all these charities were like, oh my gosh, electricity's out. Let's send solar panels, which is good. But he was like, you know, I can't compete with free, you know, so you're like killing this guy's business. Um, as far as a charity thing goes, there was a, I don't remember who the organization is, and it's probably best not to even say, but they were trying to help pregnant women by giving them food. And so girls were like, well, let's get pregnant. I'll get free food. You know, so I, <laughs> so, you know, your, uh, your solar, your solar panel, uh, um, example. example there's actually in the book, toxic charity. He, he uses the, and, and how. Um, right. It was the it was the idea that after this earthquake, the world, America, whoever, we all the people wanted to help. Right. So you think of oh, we'll bring something in there. Right. But like you said, there was already a local guy down there, a local company that was trying to, you know, they were entrepreneurs trying to build their business yes. while also helping their neighbor through, right. um, you know, that, that kind of economy. He, and his business was completely destroyed. And then, uh, you know, we lose focus, right? Even if even the people that, you know, okay, Haiti's in the news, they've had an earthquake. So for maybe the next six months or a year, the world has come to help, help and then they leave. And now they've just destroyed this guy's business and yeah. they left, you know? Right. So it's yeah, very sad to hear that. The other thing is, um, yeah, now an earthquake is a real disaster, but the other thing is most people who do work are on the disaster model. You know, like it's not a disaster. I mean, it's a chronic thing. So, I mean, it's in a bad situation, but it's not the disaster model. That might work. Earthquake, I got to send water because you need water to survive until you get your water bag on. Back in the earthquake, I'll tell you this because I thought of this, you know, they couldn't get anything in there and the streets were loaded with debris from fallen buildings and the U.S. was trying to get the airport open and the ports to bring in heavy equipment. And I'm like, you know, there's a bunch of Haitian guys around. Get some army guys, get 10 of them and say, clear the street. I'll pay each 50 bucks, man. They could have cleaned the whole city up in a week. And I've seen Haitians do work and move some rocks. I'm like, dang, how did you move that rock? I mean, the very, I mean, with, with the, you know, I don't know if we're maybe a hundred thousand dollars, you could have easily cleaned the city with Haitians and given them money, you know? Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's need a heavy great thing. Equipment and stuff. That's a great thing to learn from, you know, speaking of some of these, you know, Haiti, unfortunately has had, they're, they're right in, in the hurricane zone. Right. And, yeah. you know, I'm from, I'm from Florida and we have had our series of hurricanes over the years. We certainly get damaged and everything, but when you see a country um, of people uh, that really they don't have the kind of structures and they also yeah. don't have the infrastructure to deal with 
disasters, things like that, right there in the middle. And then, and they're on an island where there's a lot more flooding and nowhere well, else to go. Because um, of the deforestation, too, the water just floods. Yeah, so, so Haiti has a lot of natural disasters. They also have a lot of political problems. We, we're, they're dealing with one right now in the last couple of months, I know, uh, with the, what was it, the assassination of their president yes. um, and, and all sorts of, so, uh, and that, it's, it's interesting because you and I connected back around January. I then was in the process of leaving my current job, moving to Guatemala, and finally it's August and we're on this podcast and I've read one of your books now. So it's, it's taken a while and I apologize for that. But, um, but I was actually thinking about you a month or so ago when the, um, when, when this came into, uh, you know, the, the news. Um, but also I thought about how the fact that this seems to be a cycle with Haiti in terms of our news media. Um, it, and actually, I think it's our news media generally. We, we basically hear about countries when there's a problem, right? Um, and so, oh, Israel's getting attacked by rockets, right? Let's focus on Israel. You know, Guatemala, you know, the vice president of the United States goes down there and, or they've got drug cartels and, you know, wherever it is. Like, so you just, you, these are like the little bits of pieces and people only get, people only have so much attention as well to focus and, and read up on these things themselves. So a lot of times the information we get, we get because of what the news media presents. Um, so the only things we really get from Haiti is natural disasters, poor people, um, unrest and chaos, all these things. Yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, there's a lot that happens in between that. But but at the same time, it is a country that deserves the world's attention um, and, and, you know, what why do we lose our interest so much? Uh, in Haiti until something big happens. That's like you said. I think it's just the news, right? I mean, I mean, the news likes to talk about disaster and stuff. But the, I, you know, you you talked about yourself being feeling very safe. People ask me why are you going to Haiti, and you know, actually, my my doctor, I got an appointment with him in a couple months. My wife went to see him too, and she goes, "Tom isn't going back to Haiti, he is? Yeah, I think he's going to Haiti." He goes, well, "Well, I'm going to talk to him when he comes in. I'm going to tell him he shouldn't go to Haiti." But I'm going to probably go. You know, I should have gone actually in June, but it takes me a while to set up my business so I can leave. And I wasn't sure. But no, I've never felt uncomfortable there. Never, never felt uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, and what I try to put in the book, too, are stories of people that's like more. I mean, the richness of it, as opposed to just what a crappy little country this is. And but just the, the richness of the of the uh, culture and the people and it's just it's hard to describe unless you've been there but people who have been to haiti when they read it they're like wow that's exactly what i know that takes them back to it um you know it's interesting uh i'm on this will be uh episode 95 of my podcast <laughs> uh episode nine almost six years ago uh, i had uh, a, a rock band that actually is from Northern Virginia. Their name is Melodyne. And unfortunately, they, they actually just technically split up as a band uh, about a year ago. Uh, different members are different parts of their lives now and pursuing families and, and different projects. Yeah. Uh, although they still have to do a reunion show because they got canceled. Or not a re I'm sorry, a finale show because it got canceled. And I said, by the time you guys have this, it's going to be a, re a reunion show. Um, <laughs> but they started a charitable organization some years ago. Like, I mean, I met them around 2000, 
2011 or 2012, and, and they had started the charity around then. It's called Now I Play Along Too. And what they do is they actually take musical instruments that people here in the U.S. Uh, donate um, and they take them down to Haiti. And then the band actually goes down. And not only, you know, they have their their boxes of musical instruments and they donate them, but then they they go to some local schools and they actually teach the students to play uh, music and how to use the instruments. Um, and what's interesting is the reason they kind of, what was fulfilling to them is two of the guys in the band are brothers, uh, Sammy and, and Ty, and they, uh, I think it was their grandparents first learned how to play music because they were poor. And they were, I think, maybe maybe Irish immigrants or a family of Irish immigrants or something. And somebody had basically left some instruments at their door as a donation. And the family became, over the generations, uh, music was central to who they were. And they yeah. sort of look back and, hey, people helped somebody in our family uh, way back. And music has been so important to us since. Let's do something. And I don't know the reason they got connected with Haiti. But um, I I know they would go there about once a year for a few years. So also from Virginia, maybe one day we'll make the connection yeah, you, with you guys. I think you sent me a, <laughs> it's probably you who sent me the link because I looked at their link. They look like they're having a lot of fun. And yeah, the Haitians love to sing. And one of the things we do in public health is we teach them songs. You know, I don't know, like if you've ever, like I used to be in the choir and we would sing the Psalms. And I can remember the Psalms by the music, but I can't just sort of memorize like a, you know, a page of songs. lyrics. Yeah. So when you hear lyrics, you remember. So we would teach them public health things because a lot of these guys can't read and write, these gals. So teaching them songs, they would remember the songs, and that's how they would learn what to do in a public health situation. But, oh, cool. Uh, but they love to sing, and I would learn some Haitian songs, and it was always kind of a connection. You know, I'd sing one of their songs in Creole, and they're like, they'd all join in and start clapping and stuff. And I've been to Boston has a huge Haitian community and I have a daughter in Boston when I used to take the cab so it was always the Haitian guy they speak Creole and they'd sometimes give me a discount you know but uh, I'd sing one of the, the Haitian songs and many of them would know the songs and they have in the book I have Proverbs they have hundreds of Proverbs and I have Proverbs in the, uh, uh, not Proverbs but yeah, yeah Proverbs little Haitian sayings some are from the French some are their own but it tells you a lot about their culture and you hear their problems. Well, I loved, I loved reading that. I saw uh, in this first book, I know you, you start every uh, chapter with a proverb and sometimes yeah. you ingrain those proverbs into the chapters. And that was really great. I was going to ask you, what is it about the Haitian culture where those proverbs developed? What, where did that come from? Do you know? So, well, my, my, my one daughter knows French. And when I went to France, we were studying there. And one of the things is um, I say, uh, what's the one? What about piti piti swazo finesse? Piti piti swazo finesse. Little by little, the bird makes its nest. You know, mm -hmm. it was always like, hey, Tom, you know, be patient. Little by little, the bird makes its nest. So I was in Haiti and France and I saw it in French. So the, probably some came from the French, but some just maybe even from Africa or something. But there's there's all kinds of proverbs. For all. And the second book has a proverb. There's 21 chapters on every chapter, too. But uh, it's just a way of explaining things sometimes, you know, why bad things happen and waiting to deal with things. One is like, I don't know, no, it isn't Creole, but like uh, the, in, 
the little dog barks loudly in front of its master's house. You know, yeah, you're a tough guy because you're over there, <laughs> little dog. But come over here and we'll see how tough you are. Tishan Pale Pos Avon Kai Kai Boss. Well, that's great. Well, um, so do you speak, uh, how well do you speak Creole now? Okay, I can get by, but I can't, there's things I can't say, you know, there's things I can't express, but I can. It's very close to the French language, but it has its own. Yeah, it's, um, it's French. Well, Creole, Creole, anything that's a Creole is, was a French with African grammar kind of thing. And basically there were uh, English colonies and there were French colonies. So the, 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 the African slaves were brought to French colonies they're from different tribes in Africa and stuff. And the language they were always hearing was French. So they kind of combined the French they were hearing with African grammar. And it was an oral language. It wasn't written down. So Haitian Creole is the most widely spoken Creole. And it wasn't written down until, oh, around World War One or Two and stuff. And the, the, the Haitian Creole is different than Martinique Creole, different than the Creole in Louisiana. Mm. It's interesting um, when you write it, it's, it's very phonetic, but it's really great because it's easy to read because I can't read French because it's all got all these subtleties in it and stuff. Um, but they'll just take out the little soft things. And then sometimes they'll take the article uh, like Zaboka. Zaboka is avocado, but the French for Zaboka is aboca, aboca. So they took the French les aboca, the avocado, les zaboca, and they just made it zaboca or la caille. They sometimes put the, the, the article in front of the word, just combine the two. And sometimes I'll get a Creole word, word like, uh, you know, akia, you know, and, and I'll tell my daughter who knows French, she goes, that's axillon, you know, some French thing, but they just do A-K-A-Y-E or something to just simplify it. But yeah, it's, it's very simple because there's no tense. They change the tense by the little thing you put in front of the verb. The, the verb is always the same, so it's really nice. Yeah, so that's great. Well, um, uh, Dr. Fame, we got just got a, a few more minutes here. I want to ask you a couple last things. Um, you know, you mentioned this in the book a little bit, uh, especially like contrasting your life growing up in the United States. And, uh, you know, we have so much material abundance here in the United States. Um and but what are we missing? Uh, and do Haitians have something in general? Uh, you know, do they have something uh, that we don't? And uh, and so yeah, tell tell me what yeah. we're missing here. So um, yeah, I, I don't want to get into my when I grew up. It's in the book. It's got a fun story. But um, you know, there are classically four substitutes for God: it's power, pleasure, prestige and uh, pride. Those are the four substitutes. None of them are bad in their own right, but too much power, too much pleasure, too much pride, too much possessions. If that's what is of most worth to you, the word worship comes from an English word, worthship. Worship, what's of highest worth in you? And sometimes these things become of highest worth to us. You know, job, our, our title, who has the most toys, you know, pleasure, pleasure, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. But those things are always never going to be satisfy you. And the one thing that is not the substitute for God is God himself and faith in that. And they, since they don't have the, 
you know, they don't have the luxury of all those four other things. So all they have is their faith. And it's so powerful. And it's so real. You know, I might say, well, I, so something happened to me about seven years ago. I was in a practice. It was a funny partnership. And they kicked me out. And I had a two-year non-compete. And I was out of work for a year fighting this so I could it just work. I was out of work. And it was a tough year for me. Um, and my Haitian friends would say, don't worry, Tom, Jesus will take care of you. And they knew it, you know, and I was like, well, I kind of know it somewhere, but I, I'm not quite sure. My, I was like Peter walking to Jesus and I'm sinking in the water. So they have this faith that's so real and authentic. And we say we have it, but we've got an insurance policy. We've got the 401k, got my house. I got 911, you know, the ambulance is right there. We've got a lot of things that sort of back it up in real life. Uh, but there you realize how real it is and tangible, you know, it's just, and you probably see the same thing in Guatemala, but that they, they have this real faith that I've been shown and, and I, you know, I don't have as much as they do, but it kind of at times of trouble, like then tap into it and they've got my Haitian friends have gotten me through. So it's, it's been a, a blessing for me, you know, and then, when you, as I say in the book, I think, you know, what has to motivate someone is love. It can't be guilt. It can't be some concept of justice is a good thing. So I'm going to be a justice warrior. You've got to really fall in love. And if you love your children, you'll do anything for their cancer, you know? So if you fall in love with, with a certain person, you'll do it. Not that it's been, you know, the love affair is always without its, like a marriage, it's little problems. And the second book goes into some of those problems. So it's a real thing. It's not this romantic love like a movie. It's real life ups and downs and struggles. But if you're in it for the long haul, you get through it. And the second book, there'll be a lot of that stuff in there. And it's, um, it's interesting how, how these relationships kept going through the hard times once you're going like, I'm committed to this relationship. Yeah. So Tom, uh, you've had the, uh, you know, you've had this really, obviously you, you're a medical doctor. Um, you had this really incredible experience going to Haiti now about 50 times over the last 25 years, uh, helping some people there build a school, uh, involved in public health, all these things. One of the things I like to do on this podcast is, uh, Ask people who are, you know, this is a podcast for mostly for uh, entrepreneurs uh, or people who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs. And I'd like people to understand what was your first job in life? It could have been something as a kid or whatever you did, uh, but what was it? And then maybe something you learned from it that maybe still sticks with you. Yeah. So my, my dad did many jobs, but he was an insurance salesman. He had some properties and he bought this corner bar and he thought, well, I'll just like have somebody run it. And he ended up having to run that bar. And I worked in that bar since I was 10. I mean, we'd go on Saturdays and Sundays and sweep it up, clean it up. And he taught us to do a good job and clean it. And, you know, and then even when I was, I was working at the bar, you know, never paid us. Cause he said, I said, yeah, we're not getting paid. He goes, Hey, you get food in the house. You don't get paid. Okay. Yes, dad. But so we just learned that. Also, I was in the Boy Scouts and we used to go to Boy Scout camp. And one year they said, hey, we need someone to do archery. You know, could you stay for two weeks and do archery? So I got paid $25 for two weeks at camp. Then I had to spend five days picking up all the docks and folding all the tents. 
Uh, and then the next year they had me as the commissary director, assistant, they call it, oh, you're going to be the assistant commissary director in charge of this food warehouse where the Boy Scouts came every day to get the meals. So I was in charge of this, I was 17 in charge of this warehouse. I had two people under me. I had orders coming in and was in charge of cutting the meat and slicing and putting those baskets together of meals. I had the menus and who does that anymore? Give someone 17, that kind of responsibility. But I always worked, you know, always worked hard and, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. That's just where, where I was. As far as the, uh, the people trying to start businesses, I think you find your passion. I mean, you probably said this. If you've got a passion for something, I tell us young people, maybe they want to be an artist. And, you know, that's not, when you say you want to be an artist, you're like, okay, this is scaring my parents. But if you really want to do it, go do it. Find the best place. But I would also find the job on the side just to kind of pay the house and stuff. But, uh, you know, and, and trust and, and, and make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, you know, because um, that's how you learn things. Mistakes are a good thing because, I mean, I've certainly made a lot of mistakes during this process. But um, And would you say, too, like, I mean, when people, um, you know, I think there's one thing to, to say that beforehand, right? Don't be afraid to make mistakes. But then there's the actual making the mistake and not being discouraged by it, right? I mean, keeping moving on and maybe maybe you learn something from it, but not to not to get not to be too discouraged. Yeah, and I think I think there's a certain personality that just does well in those situations. I think there's some people that it's just not for them. You know, they just can't take. For instance, with Haiti, there's people that just will not go to Haiti. I'll just give you money. I don't really want to go. And in public health, they find there's, there's a certain percentage of the population, and it's a fairly high percentage of population that's very risk-averse, even mm-hmm. like thinking about going to Haiti. And I've had a few people come to Haiti with me, and they were very quiet. And then when I got home, like, I'm never going back there again. I couldn't take it. I'm like, you know, to me, I see the, I see past the, the physical poverty. I see the, the life of the community. For instance, one group came down to this orphanage. And they're like, oh, my gosh. So they were talking on the way back. Did you see the showers? They just had a pipe with water coming out of it. We're going to come back with fish. I'm like, you know, they got a shower. It's private. It's water. I mean, it's a pipe. But, it's, you know, shower fixture, that's kind of a window dressing, you know. Yeah, yeah. We're going to bring, bring some interior decorators. Yeah, we're going to bring a nice silver thing or something. So, and other people. Just I do think to- there's something to what you just said, though. Uh there's most people are risk averse. Yeah. And I think that's what also makes the entrepreneur a special kind of person in our exactly. society, in our culture is a kind of person that's willing to take risk or willing to go uh, and do something out of their comfort zone. Uh, the other thing is, I think, uh, I think tr- that one of the reasons, you know, I just created a new community called Fearless Journeys. And uh, we have a, it's particularly for aspiring and ascending entrepreneurs, but right. there's a travel component. And I'm not telling people they've got to travel. Uh, and I just I just hiked an active volcano a couple months ago. And I'm not telling people they need to do that either, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that there's something to saying, hey, you know, a lot of people don't ever leave their community or their state or their country. Yeah. Um, and it, there's something about just leaving uh, and experiencing a, a different place, a new perspective. It really does make the world, uh, you know, you you really expand your horizons a lot. And I think what's interesting to me is a lot of people I've had on this podcast in some ways by chance, 
um, have told me about a travel experience or living abroad or doing something uh, that got them out of their comfort zone. And then they came back and did something entrepreneurial. Um, and so I thought, oh, that's an interesting angle because I feel like I like the travel just for travel's sake. But I've also learned that, well, maybe that's just because I'm that kind of person that wants to experience other cultures. Yeah. And then once I do experience it, it gave me a whole new perspective and and maybe think think about things differently. And it's the adventurousness in yourself. So I come from a large family. I have eight brothers and sisters, you know, so it's a big family. And I went, my, when I went to medical school, my dad's like, you know, I got money for school. So I joined the Air Force and I went to Houston. So I kind of been away from that family unit. And the bad thing about it was I don't have brothers and sisters. My kids don't have aunts and uncles. I don't have family. I've never had family around. I was traveling around the Air Force. Now I'm in Virginia. But the bad thing is I've never really had family around. But maybe the good thing is I've not been, that's a comfort zone too, right? I just got my family here. Um, and um, yeah, just thinking outside the box is another thing too. I had a, I had a reading disability when I was growing up. I couldn't read. Um, and even in high school, I was taking reading. And I had to finally force myself to learn to read. After college, I was reading books, trying to learn to read. And I talked to a reading specialist once in Haiti, actually. She was in Haiti, and I was talking to her. She goes, well, reading people who have reading disabilities go two ways. They either fail out because reading involves, you have to read the test. So if you can't read the test, I remember taking tests, and I was like, I can't even understand the question, you know. Mm. Um, so they either fail out because they, they fail the test because they can't read the questions and understand it, or they learn to think out, they, they problem solve and think outside the box. And I've always been a think outside the box problem solver. And I even use that. I look at certain doctors and they're like, their medical thing is like a list of things. You got this, you got this, you got this. And where I try to think, well, what's going on with your body and how can I fix it? So uh, thinking outside the box, you know, is is important. Think outside. And Steve Jobs, you know, he was a major yeah. outside the box guy. And not everybody has that gift. So and sometimes, again, a deficit. In my case, I still have a little trouble reading, but I'm much much better. I couldn't read, and it's actually could be a gift if you get past it in some ways. Everything has. Yeah, that's good. Well, Dr. Tom Fame, um, this has been really a great conversation. I want to, uh, there's probably people listening uh, that are asking, how can we help you? Um, how can we help Haiti? Um, how can we find you and contact you? Can you uh, answer some of those questions for us? Yeah. And, and uh, I, I guess I'd read the books in the second book, especially, and it has information on it. It's, if you Google, uh, and you can get it on Amazon. If you get it through myself, that money helps the project. They're $20 and Amazon gets all but $5. If I sell it for 20 bucks, you get, I get the whole $20 goes to the project. And uh, my address, I'm going to put it on there is uh, 221 Home Place Drive in Salem, Virginia, 24153. Um, I have a, a, a YouTube channel that has some videos it's Tom Fame 5. If you Google Tom Fame, the number 5, you'll find the YouTube. And that's probably the best thing. The website's a little bit out of date, but it's got some videos on life in Haiti and some, some on the project. But the Lambie's call, and the Lambie is a conch shell. So they would blow the conch shell, and they would tell people they were free. So it's Lambie is Haitian Creole for conch shell. The Lambie's That's great. Call. And yeah, this is the most recent book. 
the Lambies call breaking the chains. Uh, so that's, uh, that's great. And so I, I look forward, I've read the first one. It was, uh, uh, entertaining to say the least, because it's got so many of your, your, uh, stories. And it's like, I felt like I was with you as we were, you were kind of discovering Haiti for the first time and learning how to do charity and fundraising for the first time. And then, you know, as someone who's trained as a physician, um, I'll tell you, I've done fundraising for the last 15 years, but I don't think I could do the reverse like you and become a physician. So, yeah. so, uh, so, but you were able to do that for, for, and then, you know, so I'm looking forward to reading the second book here, which just came out this year. Um, and this has just been really great. We'll put um, in the show notes, we'll put some of the ways people could reach out to you, maybe a link to your YouTube channel. Do you have like a, like a website website or, or just, YouTube? yeah, the, the website is, uh, Oh gosh, what is it? I think it's OLP. It's 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 on the. Did I send you a a, um, a brochure? Oh, you know what you did, but I think I put the brochure somewhere else. It's not with me, but but, but we'll put it. But, we'll but put it in the bro- show notes. In the in the back of the book, there's the link. I think it's olphhaiti.org or OLPH Salem Haiti. I don't even know it, but it's in the back of the book. Yeah, we'll um, well we'll yes, it is. It's OL. Well, actually, it's, I'm sorry, it's, uh, it's Haiti.olphsalem.org, right? Haiti.olphsalem.org. So, and we'll put that in the show notes too for anyone that didn't get yeah. that. Uh, they can look it up. But Dr. Tom Fame, I really uh, appreciate you being on the Agents of Innovation oh. podcast, and we will continue to follow your journey as well. I really appreciate it, President. Thank you, and thank you to all your listeners. Cause the 
brothers play. They went out to the old stone streets. They strum their strings and beat their drums. Passerbys would stomp their feet, toss coins as they were done. Changed, but they live on as two Virginia boys both play to their great grandpa's song. They travel in their rolling home to lands unknown and seek to find eager hearts upon the road to fill with song and rhyme. Yeah, the brothers play, play, play. Turning music into bread and strumming trees into the truth. They found their way, way, way. Growing branches from their roots and the food of which still feeds the earth today. Cause the brothers play la 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 la. 